You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Ola Sars at Soundtrack Your Brand. The complexity to redo what we've done and the time-limited monopoly is the big, big benefit versus the cost that I'm paying right now. Hi, and welcome to the last episode of SAS Nordic before we go on the holidays. And uh, it has been really fun doing this uh, this fall and uh, really also excited about all the feedback and uh, the companies that are interested in in being on the show. So uh, expect us back soon after the holiday is over. Yeah, and we thought what better way to get us all in the right Christmas spirit than to talk to a music tech startup and I know Thomas you're particularly passionate about this one could you introduce the guest and the company to us a little bit yeah so it is not a reindeer but it might very well be the next unicorn coming from Sweden and uh, we are gonna focus on the topic of content driven SaaS and also how it differs from regular SaaS or as um, Ola calls it well if you listen you will know what he calls it But we very much enjoyed the conversation with Ola. I think there's a lot of lessons to learn here. So uh, tag along, jump on the sleigh, and let's go on with the talk. Today, we are very happy to have Ola Sars, the CEO and founder of Soundtrack Your Brand here as a guest at SAS Nordic. So welcome, Ola. Really exciting to have you here. Thanks for having me, guys. And Ola, he has been working almost 15 years in the music tech business, starting up companies like Pacemaker, Let's Mix, and eventually working with Beats Music that was acquired by Apple. And in focus was curation of music. And we have for quite some time seen several successful content-driven SaaS companies in the B2C space, such as Spotify, Storytel, and Netflix. And you, Ola, are now working with Soundtrack Your Brand that focuses on the B2B space. So can you tell us a little bit more about your company? Um, Soundtrack is uh, built on a very simple idea uh, that is uh, taking the music streaming revolution that has occurred in the consumer space with Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon and the likes into the business market, meaning the all the retailers, all the cafes, restaurants, basically what was previously referred to as background music in any type of public context where music is being used to augment or enhance a brand experience. Um, that music is coming from somewhere, right? And when I was in the consumer space, I realized that the background music market or the B2B music market had not gone through the transition to streaming. Uh, there were no streaming solutions for companies um, to source. So I figured I would take what I've learned in the consumer space and move that into the B2B space and uh, build the world leading background music service for streaming. So what specific problem do you solve for your customers? How are you unique to some of the offerings on the market already? First of all, <clears throat> we're legal. Um, there were no licensing agreements for B2B use of music streaming before we architected uh, what is actually 10,000 deals with publishers and labels worldwide today, enabling us to provide 50 million tracks 
in 74 markets. The equivalent of what Spotify or Apple are providing in the consumer space, we have now licensed for business use. So that's obviously good if you're legal and if you're compliant and you're actually sourcing sustainable music when, when you're building your brand. Um, secondarily, uh, the problems we're solving for the business owner, either if it's the small entrepreneur with a couple of restaurants in New York or if it's the big chain with thousands of, of retail outlets around the world, we're saving time for them in terms of distribution and finding the right music for the right place in the right time. And that's what B2B music is all about, finding the right experience and that specific retail experience at the right time. So that might sound different in Chicago than it does in New York or in Stockholm than a, or versus Gothenburg. Um, the, it's on brand, but it's contextually relevant given what's going on at that specific moment. And, and in order to provide that music experience, that's very sophisticated task. And it takes a lot of time if you were to do it manually. Now we're providing the distribution system for that and the AI support in order to distribute that experience in real time. We're also saving uh, them from a lot of anxiety. Music is related to a lot of anxiety if you're running a business. Um, playing the wrong music can be devastating for your business. People will leave or playing incorrect language, uh, not being able to filter out explicit lyrics could actually lead to real problems, for example, in the US. Mm. So we're taking away a lot of stress and anxiety for the business owner as well so they can focus on selling coffee or whatever they're doing. And actually, we're actually saving money for them as well. So um, the total cost of ownership of our service is very beneficial if you compare it to using legacy platforms or, uh, for example, using consumer services Rogue, which some small businesses are doing in the world. Um, so we're saving time, anxiety and money for the business owner in terms of music. Okay. And do you also help them select the right type of music to drive a particular consumer behavior? Yes, I think that is the intellectual interesting dimension of this. First of all, obviously, I came into this solving the distribution problem and kind of what I would call kind of the hygiene level, uh, deploying the music streaming model that hasn't been invented in the consumer space into the B2B space with the transparency and flow through of royalties that, that come from that model, which I which I like. Uh, but we're also unlocking, obviously, the power of technology and real-time technology for brands. Uh, and meaning that music has always been uh, an ingredient in marketing research and in neuroscientific research and so forth. Uh, there's tons of research on how music affects the human brain and how it drives different types of experiences reactions and actual behavior so we're we've obviously tapped into that research dimension as well and trying to empower our brands with using the right type of approach to what music you use in order to reach the right type of consumer experience for example if you're running a fast food chain uh, there's uh, there's science about what music to play in order to minimize the perception of waiting time uh, so that you stay in line if it's a long line and so forth. Those types of applications um, occur in the music science space. Is there a particular Christmas lyric that you would recommend for retailers this time of the year? 
I would recommend uh, a Christmas approach. Uh, and we've actually just written a pretty significant blog post on that on soundtrackyourbrand.com. Um, so I won't kind of run you through the whole thing, but the short story is don't stress the staff up with, with 20 Christmas songs times 500 during the Christmas. That won't drive your staff in the right direction. I promise you that much. Uh, you need to really think of, you need to think about how you apply your music and you need to think about the staff and their motivation through stressful times. Oh, yeah, exactly. You could just put Maria Carey, uh, all I want for Christmas is you on repeat. <laughs> on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, it's a hit. It's, it's been working for 25 years. Good luck with your talent retention on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but anyway, another thing I thought was uh, it's going to be interesting because we get so much more data now. Uh, and I mean, you're in a great position collecting that data and drawing these kinds of conclusion, uh, conclusions in the future. So it's uh, for sure interesting to see what we will get to know because we have never had these opportunities before. No, I think just a short comment on that. I think one of the theses behind starting Soundtrack was uh, kind of finding the sweet spot in between music tech, B2B sauce, and retail tech. Those were kind of the three rings that I draw, drew on a paper when starting the company. And I think retail tech is obviously it's had a very challenging year with 2020 but let's kind of move beyond the crisis and retail is obviously challenged by amazon and the likes and a whole shift in behavior just as the music industry was challenged uh, and obviously the physical experience is one of you know the core components that they can compete with so working on that customer experience is how they can compete with online sales. And that's where music and tech plays a huge role and also being uh, applying technology to the physical experience in real time. And in that equation, music is a very interesting component because you can change it in real time. You can be contextually relevant in specific spaces and specific times during specific events with a very low marginal cost. Yeah. And for example, you can, you can feed input into our APIs in real time. If it's raining in Brooklyn, it might sign different than on Manhattan if it's not raining, given input from API and, and real time adjustment of music experience. So very kind of strong connection to also retail tech in what we're doing. Yeah, it's not much that you can change about uh, the environment in the retail automatically and that fast. I mean, you can't sort of refurnish the place or, or go around and do other things. So it's uh, it's interesting opportunities. But one thing I thought about here, just so so we know, what is the size of your operations today? How, how many employees are you? Uh, the team is uh, fairly small and tight. Uh, we're 75 FTEs working out of one office in Stockholm, live in 74 market. So we have one market per employee. <laughs> super, super. And uh, approximately, uh, what is your um, ARR for the moment? We're going to come out of 2020 with a total revenue uh, at $12 million. Uh, and obviously, 2020 has been an interesting year for us. Um, our customer groups are primarily within the segments that have been directly affected by uh, COVID. So uh, that's going to be a flat year to 2019. 2020 was really the year when we were planning to move from startup to scale up. We had spent two years 
uh, rolling out uh, the product worldwide and refining the the offering basically. So we were ready to go moving into 2020. In 2018, we rolled out Europe. And 2019, we rolled out North America. And, and coming into 2020, we were hitting 74 markets live. Uh, we were actually going for 76 or 78. So we had a couple of markets left. But then obviously in March, we had to change everything and, and react to the reality of COVID-19. And what does that actually mean to you in your world? Obviously, given your exposure to, to the retail and restaurant business, like what type of changes did you have to make in March? Well, here's um, the good news of being a software company and a tight, agile team, right? Mainly focused on product. Um, I'll try to keep it short, but obviously it was very dramatic for us in, in March when we started, you know, understanding what was going on. Um, the reality of it was that we lost around 30% of our top line in four to five weeks. Basically, the engines stopped in flight. Um, so we hustled up and everyone just started working day and night in order to uh, re-engineer all our cancellation flows uh, and build in uh, COVID-related discounts and COVID-related pause options to actually churning. And we shipped that in less than a week and then obviously reiterated, reiterated, reiterated and aggressively talked to all our clients through customer success and so forth. Okay. Result being that we were able to save 80% of that 30% churn on our MRR into any of the COVID actions deployed, meaning different types of pauses or discounts. So when in June we started seeing the crisis plateau and kind of move in the right direction again, not, you know, completely, but we saw the indications moving in the right direction. We slowly started reactivating those accounts that we still had as customers, but maybe on pause. Uh, fast forward to October, we were actually back on a million dollars, $1.1 million in MRR, uh, which is where we were uh, more or less before the crisis due to the fact that we were able to use software to kind of uh, react to the crisis. Well done. Well done. And now we're all hoping for uh, a normal next year here. No, nobody knows really what's going to happen. But if, if we if we believe that's going to be a normal next year, uh, what does that mean in terms of your growth plans? Where do we see you next in terms of ARR, employees, regional reach? Right. So um, we're planning. We've just put forward a what I would call um, a Swedish plan to the board, <laughs> um, fairly careful, um, focusing. Uh, okay, let's just, you know, uh, it's, it's completely data driven with the data that we have, but there obviously, it's obviously there's a lot of question marks um, in terms of COVID. Uh, the assumptions we're making in that plan is that the first half year will still be pretty hairy. Um, on the crisis and we'll, we'll see, you know, some rebound, of course, but the real kind of markets waking up again will happen in the second half of the year. Those are the assumptions and our hopes for 2021. Um, and that will put the, the company in a position that actually now during the crisis, we've been able to also very, very focused uh, execute on some of the very core strategic components of our future offering. We've rolled out what I feel is a complete offering for product market fit. We can now provide a fully on-demand product 
for the business to business market, which is completely unique. Our Soundtrack Unlimited offering, our semi-interactive um, Soundtrack Essential product, which we had in the market before. And we also have all the major label content in there. So we're more or less complete. Um, we're on all platforms. Um, we're really kind of trimming our GTM model. So moving into 2021, uh, we're looking to achieve 45% growth on, on an ARR basis to 2020. And then moving at around the 50 mark in the three year plan on an aggregated level. That's, uh, a compound average growth at 52% in 2021 to 2023. During those, during those years, we're laser focused on our core. We're focusing on 98% of our revenues being recurring. Um, if you kind of look into 2022 as kind of an indicator, uh, our sales efficiency rate, our LTV CAC is at 3.7. Uh, that year we grew on 56%. So we're picking up growth a little bit. And in December 2022, um, we're targeting 2.8 million and monthly recurring revenue at the end of that year. Okay. Just to put these numbers in perspective, how, how big is the, the the total addressable market here? How big is the opportunity for you guys? Well, the opportunity for B2B streaming is huge. Um, it's, it's a completely unserved market from a streaming standpoint. Um, so in total, the addressable market for B2B streaming is uh, approximately 128 million locations that are addressable uh, in the total market. Uh, that market is, is currently penetrated at around 20% uh, by streaming. Uh, so that's 26 million uh, locations that have streaming today as a music solutions. The others run CD, satellite or radio or hard drives or whatever legacy technology they, they're sitting on. Um, but the interesting part of that, the 26 million locations, uh, 21 of those 26 million locations using streaming, guess what they're using? Yes, they're using Spotify or, or Apple <laughs> Music. Uh, what a shocker, right? I, 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 ju I just see lawsuits flying now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but the, the great, the good, uh, obviously, it's not based on ill intent. Uh, it's based on the fact that there has not been a streaming service out there. And if you're running a restaurant and you're using Spotify, you know, privately, of course, you want to have that power in your restaurant. You know, it's amazing um, being able to choose, you know, from all the music in the world. Um, so, so the 21 million uh, business outlets that are using consumer services is obviously a major problem for the music industry but a massive opportunity for Soundtrack because we are the solution for piracy in the B2B market. And uh, there hasn't been an option. Now we've launched the first option. Now we're working with the industry to move those 21 million over from, you know, paying $10 to paying maybe $35. And, and that's completely fine with the business owners. We see very low price elasticity. We see very high acceptance rate of actually paying bit more if you're using it to sell you know, drinks. Um, everyone understands that a B2B offering costs a bit more than a B2C offering. It just hasn't been provided yet. So so that's a major option. Obviously, obviously fixing a broken market, a great opportunity for us where we have huge support from the, from the music industry. And then obviously breaking into the 5 million that are using legacy platforms, um, you know, radio streaming and the likes of that. 
that's that's obviously a taker market for us as well, as well as growing the overall market penetration of streaming into the 128 million. So we got a lot of work to do on 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 market penetration for sure. Right, uh, going in and looking a bit closer on uh content driven saas companies so what would you say what is the main difference in between having this approach uh compared to being a, a regular in quotes uh, saas company well um i don't know if there's an academic definition but my definition is fairly simple i mean software as a service is usually we refer to workflow based uh, software, right? Uh, improving, enhancing workflows, meaning that you're not distributing any third party content. Um, for content driven, um, sauce companies, let's just call Spotify a content driven, uh, consumer sauce company because it is a music service, right? Yeah. And it's software that you're applying, uh, and very nice, slick software. Um, but there's a third party provider involved in the equation. In this instance, it's music and, uh, the music community and music labels and music publishers. Um, so you need to, uh, A, relate to the complexity of sourcing and the content that you're packaging into your software offering. And you need to relate to how you build the software solution based on what you're sourcing and providing to the market. And you need to relate to it in your, in your business planning and, and the type of business because it obviously has an effect on your cogs, hence your margin structure moving forward. Yeah. I, I think there is an opportunity here to maybe for you to set the academic uh, description because when you Google it, it's hard to sort of find information around it actually, uh, around that sort of theme. But um, what would you say, what is the benefits versus the downsides of being a content-driven SaaS company? I think, uh, I think also it's interesting what you're saying because I'm a little bit surprised when you speak to investors or kind of the industry as such, how little knowledge there is and kind of intellectual understanding that there are actually two different types of SaaS companies out there. Um, the content driven ones and the non content driven ones. If I may, I'll call them workflow sauce, content sauce. Workflow sauce doesn't sound very fun. That, that's why I'm in the content side. That's why I'm working with, that's why yeah, exactly. come on over to my side <laughs> because it sure as hell ain't yeah. easy. Uh, that's for sure, but it's a lot no, of fun. Suddenly, you know, we, we are on the workflow side, Daniel, and here is Ola having fun at the content side. I don't know what to do now. <laughs> yeah, come on over. <laughs> I'm just uh, rethinking my entire career. So, somewhere something went really wrong. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, at least we're educating now the fact that this is, this is what we're looking at when we're looking at the software as a service market. And there's a lot of massive companies in the content side, and there's a lot of massive companies in the workflow side. Look at Slack and what happened this week. Look at Spotify on the market. Both of them are uh, obviously attracting some, some very interesting valuations, right? Right. But the fundamentals are very different. And it's a very interesting discussion, I think, to kind of lift and, and good, good on you to do so. Um, so answering your question, I think there's obviously a lot of more complexity in the content driven kind of equation. Um, what you need to do is you need to think about content sourcing and con and management strategy around uh, your content offering uh, 
as a core component in your whole business strategy. It adds another dimension in your strategic thinking. Is it harder to get started uh, with this? Well, that obviously the logical response is yes, because you do not only need to build a cutting edge SaaS solution in terms of solving problems for the user, but you also need to combine that with the content sourcing, content management, and content packaging uh, of the commodity that you're selling. In this in this case, being music, in Netflix case, being series and films, and so forth. So you add this content dimension, which puts you into another industry as well. Um, either you go to Hollywood or you go into the music industry, as, as I've chosen to do, and you create a new model around how music is supposed to be distributed into the business venues of the world. So you need to uh, understand, relate to that specific content segment that you're going after, right? In my, in my case, it's music. Music isn't the, the easiest market to deal with either. It's kind of a black science to kind of even do business in there. So, so, so it wasn't an easy job for sure, kind of combining B2B sauce with music and then retail tech, which was kind of our approach with soundtrack. Anyway, answering your question, you need to add content negotiations, licensing strategy or uh, production uh, or acquisition of content. You need to set up teams and resources and planning around content sources. You need to build technology stack, AI logics, ML models based on the content that you're serving together with the customers that you're serving. Uh, you need to relate to IP related, uh, you know, upsides, defensibility, barriers to entry. Uh, playing defense and then your strategy as well, making it hard for others to obtain the same content that you're obtaining. You need to relate to IP related risk and so forth. So you can just imagine like we're, we're running a media business and a soft business at the same time and trying to make them work together. Mm. And another angle to it is obviously if you're, um, in workflow sauce, um, you're always competing with product experience. I'm oversimplifying now. I know there's obviously other IP aspects and things like that as well. But if you just allow me to oversimplify, so your replicable, uh, your, the, the big players ability to replicate, uh, what you're doing, uh, I would assume is easier. So look at the Slack and Microsoft kind of discussion. Um, how, how quickly can they build? equivalent type of kind of technology support the Slack is built versus if you need to build the technology and source the content and package that uh, into a business model, it, it kind of triples the complexity of, uh, and you're creating uh, a barrier to entry that in my, in my world is stronger. It's harder to replicate. Hence your defensibility is stronger. Yeah. Uh, but also your cost is higher. So, for example, if you call the cost of content X, X would um, hit you in a negative way in your margin structures, right? And you need to manage that into your business model in a smart way. And I can write a book about that in, in the music space, how you try to do that. <laughs> uh, uh, but also there needs to be a why, which is the why being the benefits, the pluses of having a content-driven model. And why needs to be bigger than X uh, multiple times. So discussing the why, I think, is the interesting 
thing here. It's like, what does it give me to deal with this crazy industry and pay them a lot of money when I'm doing all the work, right? Right. There, I'm not doing all the work because they're creating the amazing art that's that's creating a demand out there. But discussing the why, I think, is a very interesting discussion for companies generally because the why needs to be defined. And you need to work on that why constantly in order to actually reap the benefits of content-driven sauce. Right. And I think there's another element to that. Uh, there's also the how, from my perspective, because... Obviously, you have, if I simplify here for a second, the amazing distribution platform, but somebody else owns the content. And how do you manage that dynamics? Because to a certain extent, your business is very dependent on them doing what they're supposed to do, the, the, the IP right holders and the, the content providers. How do you manage that dynamics? Because you know, in a nightmare scenario, they could essentially just turn their switch off. And what happens then? How do you keep them engaged and willing to do more business with you? So extremely interesting question and a very strategic discussion. So let's take A, the difference between Netflix and Spotify just to set kind of a little bit of a market example. And uh, I don't know if you guys have thought about it, but Netflix has never been in a position where they're dependent on any content. Hence, they could pretty much go to market with maybe a hundred series and a thousand films, right? And try to do what they can with that and successively build. There was no expectation of the completeness of their offering. Move to Spotify. The establishment of Spotify initially was we're going to have all the music in the world. And they set the consumer expectation that a streaming service should have anything. And if it doesn't have two, three tracks that I'm searching, it's a broken experience all of a sudden. So consumers becoming very spoiled very quickly. But what also happens is that they're creating a, an amazing position for negotiating for the rights holders, right? Because all of a sudden in the poker game, they know that Spotify needs us. And, and with, with that notion, they negotiated and that market ended up uh, being divided in between rights holders and Spotify and Apple Music as it's being divided today. And we all know, I mean, the, the model is, you know, 70 plus percent rights holders and 30 plus minus for, for DSP. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that's where it ended up because you're, you're creating an expectation of being content complete. So. So that's, that's, you know, different types of content driven sauce have different prerequisites that you need to deal with. So moving into music and, uh, me having done this a couple of times and, uh, feeling the pain on the consumer side, when we built soundtrack for B2B, we had a very clear strategy of never being dependent on, on content. Uh, we saw that one of the benefits, many benefits of going into the B2B market and learning about that, is, except that businesses are willing to pay more, retention is better, and so forth, uh, was also that businesses aren't looking for exactly that specific track to play 10 times. They're looking for a soundtrack. They're looking for a brand sound. And if you have enough content to cater to that brand sound over time, you can go to market. Meaning our negotiations uh, were ongoing for three and a half years where we launched without being content complete and we launched a semi-interactive product which didn't expose the fact that we didn't have all the content. So we were kind of gaming Netflix, looking at them. 
um, and kind of providing that model until the day that we actually were able to implement our model throughout the whole market and set it according to what we believe is a healthy business model for B2B. And at that point, we actually launched Soundtrack Unlimited, which is our uh, on-demand tier, uh, enabling the customer to play Bruce Springsteen 10 times in a row if that's what they want. SAS Nordic is growing, and now we're launching a unique peer-to-peer community on Slack. My name is Nina, I'm the SAS Nordic Community Manager, and I would like to invite you to join this exciting forum. This will be the place to network, collaborate, and share knowledge with other SAS professionals in the Nordics. The SAS Nordic community is free and open to everyone working in Nordic SAS companies. Come join us at sasnordic.com. We can't wait to have you on board. And another thing I think about here, um, talking about these kind of companies, um, they almost all of them do their own content in some way as well. So we see Netflix; they have their premiere series to you know get people on the platform. HBO is doing the same. When we look at Spotify, you know they now we've got the Joe Rogan podcast show, for for instance, the the biggest one in the world, and they are also doing sort of uh, their own content storytell the same so and it's both for having that unique content but also for lowering the costs so we know that in the playlists in spotify they bring in music that they maybe don't have to pay that much for uh, compared to some other things so does this apply anything to what your guys are doing of course it does. I mean, I, I usually try to simplify this by, you know, using the Tesco example, uh, because that's what happened in retail before, right? And in fast moving consumer goods and, and FMCG is like, uh, supermarkets obviously need to source lots of great content, right? And then they started creating private labels, uh, there that they put on the best shelf and in order to prove uh, total margin output. So this is nothing new in the world of distribution. What we're doing is we're distributing other people's content, uh, but in a very sophisticated, scalable, technology-driven way, right? So um, it, Tesco started producing their own stuff, maybe through third parties, but it, it's Tesco produced. So did HBO. So does Apple uh, and and Spotify is doing it now in the podcast space. But for music uh, and commercial music, it's obviously a bit different, right? Because um, Spotify probably did think about actually creating their own label or acquiring content rights and so forth. But it creates a very, very complicated competition dynamic. Um, it's not very welcomed in the industry either. And then the notion that uh, labels and publishers will most likely not horizontally integrate forward either, create your own distribution. They tried that in the 90s and 80s and failed because if you're selling music or content, you have to have the full catalog. So if Sony would have done it, they needed to have a deal with Universal and so forth, and that just didn't work out. So, so you need an independent distribution route. I think everyone kind of concluded that that was the way to go. So I think this is a very interesting area for, for the content sauce. And for music, it's very specific. Uh, and for us currently having the commercial catalog and 50 million tracks and 74 markets, it's completely unique. No one else is even close. So for us, it's a time limited monopoly until someone else takes the time and effort to do it. 
And right now, our market is asking for the global commercial catalog, the weekends and the Bruce Springsteen's of the world. So we have a, a very strong product offering in terms of product today. We see no need to augment or produce that additional content because that's not what the customers are asking for. They're asking for uh, one of the great tracks in the 51 million pool that we're offering. Uh, and then the main driver for, for kind of, uh, horizontal, uh, or kind of just starting producing your own content as well is margin improvements, right? I think that's one of the main drivers for consumer businesses. In our instance, we actually have quite nice margins in our business. So we're not driven by that either because we have a fair and functional business model established with rights holders. That's very interesting. And, Obviously, you guys are in a sweet spot, like you said, monopoly-like situation. You're, you're disrupting uh, uh, an industry where clearly Spotify, to a large extent, has, has proven there's product market fit. Uh, but it, it's still a fairly new exercise. And I wanted to ask you, uh, how does the market value and, and set the price on what this business is worth, given that there's so many new elements compared to, call it a traditional SaaS company? Yeah, it's very interesting question as well. So I would like to go back to kind of uh, the fundamentals of valuation, right? And uh, kind of respond to it on what's going on in the markets as well today with just using the Slack and the Spotify example. Um, obviously, the multiple on, on the Slack is driven by acquisition and it's just, you know, amazing what they were able to extract. I think their projected revenue for this year was somewhere in the range of seven, 700 or 600 million, right? So, so the multiple, you can do the math on that. And Spotify has been trading on, on a, like a, a three, three X, um, uh, multiple. On, on sales, uh, last now, now the last couple of weeks, I think they're up pitching six, seven X, right? Um, on what's projected for 2020. Um, so, so somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in between, um, that, that space is, uh, given that we're growing at 50% and we're in very early stage using EV sales or sales multiple as a valuation method. Is, is as close as to kind of logic I get when I talk about valuation. And, but obviously digging into that science, we all know how that works and, and looking at margin development and growth over time discounted to current value. Um, but you know, it doesn't make any sense when you look at some of these valuations. So you might as well simplify it for yourself and say, look, I just want to keep, uh, an interesting growth rate going. And I want to keep my top line, uh, expanding. Uh, and I don't want to screw up my current set margin structure too much, maybe even improve it over time. Uh, that's the only way I can stay sane around understanding, uh, valuations in this space, to be honest. Right. Uh, because it's so opportunity driven. And it's so demand driven that applying what we learned in school doesn't make any sense anymore. From a KPI perspective, what would you say are the main KPIs and which ones are different in a content driven SaaS business to really keep track on compared to traditional SaaS business? Right. Very good question. I think it's um, uh, back to the logic of, of content driven SaaS versus workflow driven SaaS where we're actually paying 
a third party supplier, right? And that cost of content affects our whole business and how we track our business because it has an effect on our margin structure. So that's just the prerequisite. So we track what we call royalty margin, for example. That is basically what we're selling to our customers less the cost of content. That's kind of the first indicator of the profitability potential in a, in a content-driven SaaS company. And then we add other cogs to get to gross margin. But you should always be looking at the royalty margin to clear out what exactly is content costing uh, and how much margin are they extracting less that content uh, in order to kind of sell that value to the market. Um, so pricing and margin is that equation is completely different. And that obviously um, changes the whole way of analyzing the business. Because when you look at SaaS businesses, they're operating at 80, 90% gross margin, right? So when you apply rule of 40 and so forth, those, those come into play very significantly. And if you analyze a, a content-driven SaaS business, you kind of have to adjust those calculations because the cost of content equation is so different. But the most interesting question is, okay, what do I get back for paying all of this money, right, for the content? What's the upside? What's the benefit? And I think that that's the interesting thing, tracking that. And that obviously goes back to uh, the relative benefit of my content offering versus anyone else's content offering. Right. Uh, and what does that mean for my for my business? So we track things like perceived content completeness. One of our main churn drivers before was that we weren't able to supply all the content in the world uh, because that was the expectation thanks to Spotify and everyone. And when we were rolling out, uh, if you weren't able to you know, match every search query, then you were basically perceived as an incomplete product. So very harsh reality. But now we're there, right? And now we, no one else can supply on that need. Hence, we have this very strong relative benefit in the market and we're the only ones providing that option. So the barrier of entry that we're creating is kind of my biggest upside right now and the complexity to redo what we've done and the, and the time limited monopoly is the big, big benefit versus the cost that I'm paying right now. So that's always what you need to ask yourself uh, when you're doing this. Okay, it costs 18% on the margin. I'm just taking an example here. Okay, but how much do they get back in terms of customer satisfaction, customer retention, and competitive benefit, hence better efficient go-to-market, better market penetration, and winning market share from competition? I'd like to go back to when you started, and I think this is interesting because when you started in 2013, you didn't start building a new uh, tech platform uh, and focus on that. You 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 wanted to prove the business case, and you started up Soundtrack together with with Spotify uh, under the name Spotify for Business, and you worked here in some of the Nordic countries for a few years. So. When did you see that that actually there there was a commercial uh, opportunity here, and and what was that like? Not focusing on on the product from the beginning, focus on the opportunity. Right. So we did actually focus on the product one hundred percent, but we focused on the customer interfacing part of the stack. Um, back to kind of the complexity of content driven sauce again, and I can relate to that again. 
not only do we have to build the customer interfacing experience that should be amazing and kick ass and the best for small and big businesses and so forth. You also have to build the whole infra- infrastructure backend to source the content, manage the content, report the content, remunerate rights holders correctly and so forth. And that's what we chose not to start building because I, I had just done that at Beats and it was, uh, you know, a $30 million build. It's 24, 36 months at its best. And it's probably really hard to fund as well. That was my assumption coming back to Sweden. So like, but there's a couple of, of great music backends built in their market already. Um, why don't I focus on the understanding the B2B customer logic and sourcing my team towards building that first? And we do a deal with Spotify so I can source their backend technology and their backend sourcing. Mm. So I was able to connect to their engine basically and build the design on top of it for, for, um, for the business to business customer and prove out that logic. Yeah. Was there a specific moment when you, you felt that this flies, this can be big? Yes. Um, I think we had, uh, the pros and cons of starting a company with an industrial partner is a whole other episode, I think, uh, to talk about. Uh, but uh, we chose to do so. And when asked if I would do it again, my, my response is yes, because the fa- the benefits out trump the, the negatives on in the equation. Um, and we we did so because we needed velocity to market in order to test a, the idea of does music streaming fly with businesses, basically. And uh, being able to do that with the world's best music catalog in quite mature markets like Norway, Finland, and Sweden, streaming mature markets, was a very, very interesting market experiment, right? It was a very expensive MVP, uh, obviously, but... Uh, we achieved what we were looking to achieve, which was commercial proof of concept uh, with a very simple MVP product under the name Spotify business. We were able to prove go to market and willingness to pay and source streaming in business. So we started uh, during 2013, 14, uh, right in between there. And then already in 2015, uh, we decided to take the next step and move away from home because we had gotten that product out fast and the verification that it worked. Um, hence, we took the decision of going what we had planned from the beginning, 100% independent, building our own licensing structure, our own infrastructure, and everything that needed was needed in the full-stack deployment of a music service for business worldwide. I wanted to come back a little bit to what you just said, the go-to-market approach. As you initially described, the opportunity ahead of you is is massive. And uh, I know that you have tens of thousands of customers already and you're present globally. How do you serve that big of a market? What is your go-to-market approach? Well, um, on the go-to-market, even though we did uh, exercise this very advanced go-to-market experiment, I would say, in our commercial proof of concept with Spotify, we we realized during that uh, exercise that both enterprise business, mid-sized business, and small business are interested. So that's obviously very compelling, right? And then the question was, 
okay, can you actually serve these three segments uh, with one offering? And our, our uh, intent was to do so because all, all of them are looking for the same job to be done, which is the right music in the right place at the right time. But the sales approach is different, but the product experience isn't that different. Yes, it's more complex to manage 3,000 outlets around the world than two restaurants in Stockholm, absolutely. But it's still just a tree, a tree structure, and it's still just like a CMS management, uh, and you could do both uh, in our product. But the go-to-market is obviously very different, and the requirements of selling into enterprise versus selling to SMB are very different. And here is where we made a lot of mistakes, even though we did have this uh, experiment beforehand. But the experiment was more about product, I would say, not about actually deploying a full go-to-market strategy, which ended up with us actually deploying four sales channels initially, mm -hmm. both field sales towards the enterprise market, inside sales towards the kind of mid-market, partner sales uh, through different types of platforms like, for example, Kona, uh, for example, Axis and so forth. Um, and then also online sales, which we took for granted, by the way, because we come from the consumer side and we thought, yeah, sure, you should be, you should be building online uh, onboarding, provisioning and management. That's just a part of it. But we then learned that that was very, a very exclusive luxury of being able to do that in B2B SaaS. Our product was simple enough in order to provide a self-serve solution to, which we now learned fast forward is the way to go. So we launched these four channels and we crashed. I would say, uh, we were all over the place. We were, we were creating inefficiencies, um, uh, throughout these channels. We were, we were creating very poor focus. We were growing fast, but we were growing at a low efficiency rate. And, uh, fast forward, we, we, we took the consequences. We did the math. We analyzed our business when we had time to kind of look away from rolling out 74 markets in 24 months. And we re-architected our GTM towards what we have today, which is uh, a, what we call an online first self-service GTM. And it's basically like total focus on the online channel, but with assisted onboarding from customer success. So we have now provided a 100% scalable go-to-market that we're proving works. Uh, and we're obviously very happy about that, but it was damn painful getting there. To come back to, uh, you had these two models where one was the entry level and one was the, the expansion level. Um, how do you expand and how do you grow existing customers? So for me, that I don't know enough about your business. If I have uh, a network of stores, do I pay per store or what is it that scales the cost of, of your service? So we sell subscriptions, right? One subscription, let's just take the example of, of the $35 subscription, which is our tier two essential, soundtrack essential. Um, we sell that on a subscription basis, meaning that one account, one customer could potentially be, let's just take Joe and the Juice as an example, which is one of our customers. They have around a thousand juice bars. Read, that's one account for us, but they have a thousand subscriptions under that account. 
Okay. So one of our core product benefits is obviously also centralized control. So if you would do a thousand um, Spotify accounts, uh, given that that would be legal, it's completely illegal, then obviously as an administrator of the brand, it would be impossible to control the brand experience because you wouldn't know what what's going to be played in kind of the distributed uh, endpoint. In our system, we control everything from one instance and we kind of can 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 adopt the brand experience from one point and you can manage a thousand juice bars. They actually manage all of their juice bars with one person from Copenhagen. Answering your question, that means that uh, uh, Joe and the juice bar is one account, thousand times their subscription fee per juice bar per month. That's kind of what we call the, the mid segment of customers. Then it's the true enterprise market. And I'll get into kind of our focus right now. That's obviously the McDonald's of the world of, or the, you know, the Starbucks of the world, H&M. That's, right. that's like the pure enterprise market. Uh, and then we kind of from Joan the Juice downwards, we start moving into our core segment because as a sauce company, we are 100% dedicated to scalability and scalability comes from an online distributed product in our sense and a product led growth story and self service as kind of the key. So we target the, what we call the, the SMB mid market where uh, we try to get the multi-location, uh, mature companies that are ready to buy self-service. That's how we had, that's how we, that's how we define our market. It's not so much about size. It's about the maturity and willingness to buy self-service and manage self-service because that's scale. So answering your question, uh, exact, your exact question, we sell on account basis. We, but we monetize through subscription basis. So seats for us is music subscriptions, but our intake model is always online focused. And usually we take in an account with one or two subscriptions initially. And then we expand from there when they've kind of accepted the product and it's the fit for them. So very, very close to kind of normal online, uh, GTM driven sauce companies. Where we kind of have an SMB land and expand approach, uh, to these, to, to these accounts coming in with the obviously ambition to grow the net value in those through time. What would the best piece of advice be that you would like to share with other founders that are on a similar journey from you? You, you said you have experienced a lot during these years, but, uh, any, any particular advice that you would like to give? I mean, the general advice is always focus, right? And I think. Uh, one of our leading entrepreneurs in Sweden, Daniel, has, has really showed us the way many of us like you have to be ruthless in your focus. When you start becoming successful or a little bit or you have a perception of being successful or someone else has a perception of you being successful, your table will be flooded with opportunities. You will get opportunities from left to right. We should do a collaboration here. We should do an integration here. We should work together on this market. I've been in the industry for, you know, all of these opportunities, you need to know what filter to apply to them in order to find a laser focus of executing on your core every day. It's very, very easy to get carried away. And we have been, oh, I'll fly to Seattle. You know, that's like a 12 hour flight or 15 hour flight. And then you're exhausted and you just burnt a week on something that that's not on strategy. Right. That's never going to work. So, or you do partner calls or you have a BD team that's very strong and wants to kind of, you know, 
flood your dev team with ideas that are not core. Find the core, if you're lucky enough to find the core, and then be ruthless in your focus. Thanks. That's a great piece of advice. Cool. But Ola, really nice to uh, to talk to you and, and also hear about your journey and mistakes and opportunities going forward. So we wish you the best of luck and thank you for being on the show. Thanks, guys, for doing this for, for Sweden and then educating us about what we're actually doing so we know what sauce means. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. So, Thomas, did that episode get you in the right Christmas spirit? Absolutely. And uh, it also made me want to put all my money into Soundtrack Your Brand because I think they have a very solid offering and, and a great business idea. You, you and me both. So what's your biggest takeaway today? I think it's about when you want to prove your business case that it's important to have a product that is user-friendly and looks great and feels great. But you don't necessarily have to build the full backend from the beginning yourself. You can sort of um, tag along with another company that might sit on that uh, technology or those rights or, or so. And I, I think Soundtrack is a perfect example of how to do this in the best way. That's a great point. My biggest takeaway today is that in simple terms, the traditional SaaS playbook doesn't apply to content-driven SaaS. There needs to be a new playbook driven. The KPIs are different. The go-to-market strategy is different. The entire piece, how you work with your IP right holders is completely different. So. That entire element was was interesting to me to to dig into a little bit deeper. Yeah, are you still inspired to continue work with workflow SaaS? <laughs> uh, I still feel very excited to work with workflow SaaS. Definitely, I I would love to have a, a different name for it though. Yeah, exactly. So if you have a better name for, you know, workflow SaaS, please uh, sort of uh, write a, a comment on the episode. Uh, at LinkedIn and let's see what we can find out. So uh, it will be a prize for the winner, I promise. Uh, but anyway, uh, LinkedIn is a great way to interact with us. You can follow us uh, on LinkedIn. And if you want to help us, uh, you can tell your friends, but also go in on iTunes and give us a good review. Help us making this a great asset for the Nordic SaaS community. Great. With that, we wish you all a very Merry Christmas and look forward to chatting with all of you guys again in January. See you around.